Read scripture from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians 5. We read the chapter taking as our text this evening, verse 11. We hear God's word. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night, nor of darkness. Therefore let us not sleep, as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet the hope of salvation." For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together, and edify one another, even as also ye do. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you, and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, and be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the spirit, despise not prophesyings, prove all things, hold fast that which is good, abstain from all appearance of evil, and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with an holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. We take verse 11 as our text this evening. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. May God bless his word to our hearts. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, as we go away from the table of the Lord, we do so with thankful praise. We do so with adoration. We do so with the desire to glorify God in everything that we do. The Apostle's letter here to the church at Thessalonica is an encouraging letter. 
The church was experiencing intense persecution. But under that persecution, the saints were thriving. They were thriving by God's grace. They were a model of brotherly love. They were displaying a model of Christian living in the face of adversity. And every chapter closes with a reference to the coming of Jesus Christ as God directed the saints to that hope. So that in every chapter, the apostle is saying, don't focus on the things here below. Keep your eye focused on Christ. He's coming again. But every chapter also focuses on encouragement to the saints. Paul was not afraid of commending them for their good works, which God was working in and through them for his glory. As thankful children of God, it's important that we take time to build up and to encourage one another in the faith. There are doubts, despairs, burdens, trials, sicknesses, struggles in marriage, struggles with parenting, struggles at school, dealing with bullies. There are struggles with those who find themselves socially awkward, those who struggle to find their place in the church. And these struggles affect all the different ages of the congregation, children, young people, as well as elderly saints. All of us have struggles in one or more of those various areas in our lives. Now to encourage one another runs contrary to our natures. At the recent parenting marriage conference, the importance of this idea of encouraging our children was brought up in the question-answer session. And someone had reached out to me about believing that this could be a valid subject for a sermon, for which I'm thankful, and I believed it fit well here with applicatory. But we're better at tearing people apart. We're better at gossiping and slander than encouraging. We become self-absorbed so quickly. We isolate ourselves from others and we become proud. And rather than encouraging others and trying to find opportunity, we're more inclined with finding fault. And our parenting quickly can also devolve in that manner. That all we see is the problems, the faults of our children. We can despair and discourage our children as a result. So that we become guilty then rather than building them up and strengthening them of giving occasion for wrath. Now there are many excuses that we can use and excuses that come to mind in our relationship with one another, in our parenting, in our marriages. Some state we wouldn't want to encourage our children because that perhaps would make them proud. Perhaps they would be inclined to seek the praise of men. Others would say, well, Why would I encourage others when I never get encouraged? Nobody ever talks to me. Why would I reach out to others? Why would I compliment someone? Giving them a compliment might encourage them to become proud in some area or another. God demonstrates in this chapter and in the text specifically that we take, verse 11, the important place of comforting, encouraging, and edifying one another. And we note this as important in the realm of our marriages, important in our parenting, but also in our church interactions one with another. And so as we go away from the table of the Lord, we do so, taking to heart this calling, comforting and edifying one another. First of all, noting the calling here, 
Secondly, the manner, the way in which this is to be done. And finally, the encouragement. The apostle says, Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another. The two words that are used here, comfort and edify, are significant. And both emphasize the importance of biblical praise, biblical encouragement that's being shown to members in the congregation, our brothers and sisters in Christ, but then also in our marriages, in our families. The word comfort there literally means to come alongside of. And the idea is that we pull someone to our side and we come alongside of them in order that we build them up, that we strengthen them, that we assist them with their burdens. It was actually a word that had origins in the military environment where in military situations the soldiers would not be far apart but rather the soldiers would come together in order that they could bear one another's burden, protect each other and encourage one another in close shoulder-to-shoulder encouragement and combat. And that's the idea, coming next to one another in order to protect, to encourage, to build up that other one. The word edify has the idea of strengthening in order to build up. And often that word is used in the context of building up. Edifying. The idea there is this, God is building his church. And as God builds his church, he's strengthening his saints through the process of sanctification. And as he uses his spirit and his word as the chief means in this glorious work, he also places his children in circumstances and relationships where they are called to encourage and to build one another up. So that this glorious work of the building of the church isn't just something that falls on the office bearers, but it's that which falls on all the various members of the congregation as together we seek to encourage one another and to build one another in the faith and in the truth of God's word. The idea there then isn't just to boost their ego to make them feel better about themselves. That's not biblical. That would be contrary to the reality of our sinful depravity. The idea is not that we just say nice things in order to make them feel good. The idea is that we direct them to the truths of God's word, the promises of God's word. We direct them to see God's hand and God's work in their lives. Direct them to the works that God is performing in their lives as we see evidence of good works that God is working in and through them for which we are thankful. And so we commend them. We express to them our gratitude for the gifts that are evident in their lives that God is at work. These words don't merely then encourage pride and flattery, but humble gratitude. As we thank God, not only for evidence of his work in my life, but also the fact that I can see his work in my spouse's life. I can see that in my children's life. I see God's work of grace in the lives of saints around me. And we praise God and we thank God for his spirit and its work. We help one another see evidences of God's grace and God's goodness and God's favor. That's the idea, building our children, building our spouses, encouraging fellow members of the congregation as we see evidences of God's work of grace, evidences of the fruit of the Spirit 
in their lives. God's children are living the wonder of the cross. They're living in the hope of the resurrection. They're living in the joy of the Holy Spirit. And we want to be pointing them and encouraging them to keep their eye focused on that glorious hope and the wonder works that God has performed in their lives. God calls us to promote holiness, to encourage one another, admonish one another where necessary, pointing one another to that spiritual growth that is expected of us as the children of God. So that rather than always finding fault, as our nature sometimes can be, loving admonition, loving encouragement, characterized by patience and understanding, become part of our relationships. Now note the striking way the apostle does that very thing in our text. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. Isn't that striking? He's not coming in order to admonish them for something they're not doing. He's saying, keep doing it. In other words, he's coming alongside them as his spiritual children and saying, you're doing good. Keep it up. That kind of encouragement, that's necessary. But even in addition to that, as I noted, every chapter of this book includes sections of encouragement. We take to heart and we learn from the way in which the apostle here interacts with the saints at Thessalonica. Look at chapter 1 verse 3. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father. What a beautiful encouragement. Here's the apostle coming to this church, these saints who are under oppression and persecution, and he's saying, every day I'm giving thanks for you. I'm making mention of you regularly, to others even, remembering what I see in you as God's work of faith, the love that God is working in your life, the patience of hope that you have in the sight of God. Look at also in chapter 1, verse 7. So that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. Again he comes and he says, you have been examples to the saints. Keep it up. Again, what encouragement. Here's the apostle, not coming with a hammer, not coming to beat on them, but coming to say, keep it up. You're examples to the saints around you. Chapter 2, verse 13. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. We thank God without ceasing for the way in which you responded to the word when we came preaching to you. Again, what encouragement to the saints. In verse 20 of that same chapter too, for ye are our glory and joy. To tell our husband, tell our wife, tell our children, you are my glory, my joy. In chapter 3, verse 12 and 13, and the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. 
Here the apostle is saying, we've been abounding in love, and we encourage you, continue to increase and abound in that love one toward another and toward all men. In chapter 4, 9 and 10, but as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. In other words, I don't even have to talk to you about brotherly love. You understand it. You know it. And you're living in that spirit. The apostle himself giving us direction here as how it is that brotherly encouragement within the church is to take place. Now, as members of Christ, we're called to this important task. The people of God encourage one another in their interactions with each other. We don't look at society. We don't look at the world for that encouragement. The world is going to be using means to stress, perhaps, self-worth. Counselors might direct us to look at ourselves and to be encouraged by who we are and the strengths that we have. Bolstering pride, bolstering perhaps even self-dependence. That's not the spirit of the church's interaction with one another. Worldly people understand flattery. They'll make use of flattery. They'll make use of encouragement. But why? So they can get something out of us. Or so they can get something out of it. And that again is a warning that the book of Proverbs is filled with. Just to give a few verses out of Proverbs. Proverbs 20 verse 19. He that goeth about as a talebearer revealeth secrets. Therefore meddle not with him that flattereth with his lips. Proverbs 26, verse 28, A lying tongue hateth those that are afflicted by it, and a flattering mouth worketh ruin. Proverbs 29, 5, A man that flattereth his neighbor spreadeth a net for his feet. Our motive is different. That's not the way in which we conduct ourselves. As we go away from the table of the Lord, beloved, we know a joy, we know a happiness that is so marvelous that is so wonderful that nothing can compare to it. God has taken us and made us members of His covenant. He's given us a Savior. And as we know the horror of our sin, we also confess the wonder of the deliverance that we have in Jesus Christ. And we're motivated then to walk in thankfulness, in thankful praise to God for our salvation. And that thankfulness is what characterizes then our interaction. Note the wherefore here of our text. In verse 11, wherefore, comfort yourselves. What are the things in the preceding context that he's making reference to there? In other words, wherefore comes because of something else that has been spoken of. The whole book, including this chapter, is talking about the coming of Jesus Christ. That's the main encouragement that the Apostle is giving to struggling, persecuted saints. He's encouraging them, look beyond the things of this life. Look to the kingdom of heaven and look to the coming of Jesus Christ. And he's building them up and he's strengthening them and he's comforting them with the glorious truth of the one sacrifice of Christ, his resurrection, and his final return. Now that was necessary because believers were watching their loved ones die. And when they saw their loved ones die, they were thinking that was the end for them. They thought only those who were still living at the end would be beneficiaries of the wonder of Christ's return. 
And so Paul assures them, no, physical death is not their end. As a matter of fact, Jesus, when he comes back, he's going to raise their dead bodies like unto his most glorious body. And so he gives that encouragement in the last part, especially of chapter 4. And then he concludes that chapter with verse 18, very similar to our text. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. That is, practically, in the context of death, in the context of the loss of loved ones, here's the word of encouragement that is necessary. An encouragement in Christ and in his coming again and his resurrection. But also in that same context, he's talking about warnings. And those warnings come out in chapter 5. He warns about the fact that the wicked will be destroyed when Jesus comes again. And that that destruction will be complete. In chapter 5, verse 3, For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But then in chapter 4, he contrasts the saints with the wicked. So for the wicked, destruction. But notice the contrast. But ye, brethren, verse 4, are not in darkness, that that they should overtake you as a thief. And then chapter 5, ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. That's the marvelous encouragement now that's in the context of our text. So what is it that we encourage one another? Our identity. Who are we? We are children of the light. We are children of the day. We are not children of the night. We are children of the day. And what a marvelous encouragement. Your identity is based on your connection with Christ. Your union with Christ. Don't let the enemies discourage you. The enemies are blaspheming. They're persecuting. But you belong to Christ. And your unity with Christ is your encouragement. How often do we not need that reminder, especially our children? Discouragement is a thief. It's a thief that steals from those who want peace and joy. And instead of peace and joy, discouragement robs teenagers, it robs children. And it's a thief that goes after them in order to rob them of joy, rob them of happiness, and cause them to become increasingly discouraged. But it's not limited. It goes after all of us, does it not? So that it takes away our joy. It takes away our peace. And then it leaves us with what? Frustration, insecurity, questions, self-pity, all kinds of distress. And the devil just keeps pounding us down. The devil makes us feel as though our identity is tied to the accusations that are coming against us. I am what those bullies are saying about me, so that my identity is tied to the circumstances of my life. My identity is tied to the sins and the behaviors of others. The devil has an agenda, and the devil's agenda is to drive us down, to bring us down to discouragement. Over against the agenda of the devil, we have the words of our text, comfort and edify one another. And now again, in the context Help keep one another focused on who you are. You are children of the light. 
You are children of the day. Walk as such. Encourage one another in that. As parents, how important this is to encourage our children to see themselves as those who are in Christ, to encourage them in that union to Christ, and to direct them and to show them the wonder of that. They are children of the light. Don't live as children of the darkness. Don't conduct yourself as though you're a children of the wor- a child of the world. Instead, live in the way that is Christ-like. We see them doing things that characterize the children of darkness. And so we warn them. We direct them in loving admonitions to see that's not who you are. If you continue to walk unrepentantly in those ways of sin, that's going to be the way of discouragement. It's the way of distress. It's the way of all kinds of self-pity and mired with shame and guilt. The way of joy, the way of happiness is to live as children of the light. And so we praise them for evidences we see of God's Spirit at work in them. We compliment them as we see evidences that God is giving them that sensitivity. They desire to make decisions in accordance with His will. The Bible stresses that God takes pleasure in His children. As parents reflecting our Heavenly Father, we then express that pleasure in our children. God rejoices over us. Similarly, as parents, we rejoice over our children. All God's enemies are going to be destroyed. There's no comfort for those who walk in unrepentant sin. Christ is coming again. And he will keep his appointment. And he will visit in wrath and punish all those who are children of darkness. But we are children of the light. Now this explains the reason why the world isn't looking for the coming of Jesus. And that's what the apostle here is establishing. For Christ's coming is going to come like a thief in the night. For the wicked, not for the children of God. We're watching. We're praying. He's not going to come suddenly and unexpectedly for God's children. But they are trying to avoid the subject. They don't want anything to do with Christ's coming. They don't want to address it. They don't want to deal with the reality of having to be accountable for their sin. They're spiritually asleep. They're drunken. And so what do they do? They say, peace, peace, where there is no peace. Verse 3. There's a striking point to verse 3. The motto of Rome was peace, Pax Romana. That is, peace for Rome. That was just a motto. And the apostle here is mocking, in a sense, and stating the foolishness of such a motto. There was no peace in Rome. There's no significance to that motto for the wicked. The Romans could talk all day about peace, but apart from Christ, there's no peace. The only hope is to repent, turn from sin, and be found in Christ. And we confess our union with Christ. We confess that truth by faith. And we walk with him and we look to him as our encouragement, as our strength. Encourage one another in this glorious truth of our identity. But what's the manner in which we do so? The manner in which we do so is with the word of God. 
That ought to be basic. Again, the apostle demonstrates that clearly in the context of our text, but it's also the teaching of Scripture. Think of Ephesians 4, verses 11 and following, that teach the various gifts that God gives to his church. He gives these gifts for the edifying, for the building up of the body of Christ, using similar language that we have here. And what is it that builds up the body? It's pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. What is it with which the pastors and teachers labor? The Word of God. God's Word is the tool that we make use of. The power of the Word of God is on the foreground in our text. How is the body of Christ built up? How is the body of Christ comforted? How is it that we encourage one another? By the word of God. The Holy Spirit, the comforter, performs this powerful work of comforting and strengthening by his spirit in connection with the word. And so God calls the saints, be busy in the word. Frame your encouragement with the words of the Lord. Think of Acts 20, verse 32. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. How often do we find ourselves in a situation where we just don't know what to say? We just don't know what to do. We don't understand the struggles, perhaps, and the challenges that the individual or that our children are facing. And this can be the case also, especially with our teenagers. We just don't understand everything that they're going through, and perhaps they're not telling us everything. But we can tell there's burdens in their life. They're extremely troubled. We know that there are others in the congregation bearing burdens that we can't even imagine. And we think about what to say, but then everything we think of seems lame. It just doesn't seem pertinent. Bring the word of God. Bring God's word. God's word is always helpful. God's word will never return void. God will cause his word to bear the fruit that God ordains. And so God's word is that which we bring. And the Holy Spirit will apply it in ways that we can't even begin to know. God's word is able to bind up. It's able to encourage. It's able to comfort. It provides the encouragement. Perhaps there's someone that's suffering. And the simple word that we simply convey to them is the fact that when one member of the body suffers, we all suffer. And that can be a huge encouragement to that one, knowing that others care about me and others feel for me in the midst of my suffering. So that it wasn't a profound thought that we made, simply quoting the scripture and bringing that word. Knowing God's word bringing that word of God, comforting one another with that word of God. Writing notes, quotes from Scripture, putting it in our children's dinner pails, encouraging with the word, and knowing that Jehovah God will use that word to accomplish his good pleasure. Our texts, our emails, our encouragement, characterized by the word the word 
has power. And so gently we come near to fellow saints. We let them know we love them. We let them know that we desire to help them. And we show that by directing them to the Word, directing them to Christ, bringing comfort from Scripture. I was encouraged by the recent marriage parenting conference with his emphasis on memorizing Scripture and making use of Scripture. And important that is for all of us to be in the Word, to know the Word, and to bring that Word. Commit passages to memory that perhaps are promises that will be an encouragement to others. And pray that God will cause His Word so to live in our hearts that we're free to speak it to others. And that that Word then becomes alive in our children's hearts. Maybe we see something, how they're reacting to anger or another circumstance in their life and we bring them to the Word. We set before them the words of Scripture, lovingly coming beside them and encouraging them to patience, encouraging them to biblical discipline. Maybe someone is struggling with the burdens of life. Maybe it's a young mother with a busy household. And you older mothers who survived the busyness of those years, come alongside them with some words of encouragement from Scripture that meant a lot to you. How precious that is for us. Perhaps even you remember others who brought words of Scripture to you in times of need. And similarly, how God can use you in order to encourage others. How precious also correction is for us. We need correction until we die. And as we live as members of the body of Christ, what a privilege to value also that opportunity. Others that have come alongside me through the years and have corrected me in a loving, careful manner. I appreciated that. I'll never forget it. I remember talking to a young man one time who was driving feed truck on Sunday and there was an elderly member of the congregation concerned about that. Was that really necessary? Was it really a work of mercy? And so he came to him and this young man said he was shaking. This man was shaking. He was so nervous but he finally was able to get out his concern in a very humble and careful manner. And this young man was so struck by the fact that that man thought enough to come to me, as difficult as it was, in order to share that concern with me. And later he spoke appreciatively. He went and found a different job, and he was appreciative of that interaction. We're living the Christian life together. We need one another. We pray for wisdom to deal one with another in love. And what wisdom is needed so that we don't impose our own demands on others? We pray that it not be my perspective, my opinion, but this is the word of God and this is God's will, that of my master. So easy it is to get caught up in my own concern, my own demands, but that's going to result in strife. We'll promote division and strife when we promote self. We keep our eye on Christ and keeping our eye on Christ and his word and his will and his way. Now, this requires of us a few things. First of all, this requires that we're living with one another. As parents, we need to be living with our children. As spouses, we need to be living with one another. As members of the congregation, we need to be living with one another. If we're 
cutting ourselves back, if we're separating and isolating ourselves, if we're so busy that we don't have time to be around our children, around our spouse, we're not going to be able to be edifying and building one another up as we ought. Our children are going to see that. They see parents who are disregarding the scriptures. They know what the Bible says about talking bad about teachers and ministers and office bearers. And if they hear their pastor, their parents using such language, what kind of value are they going to put on the Word of God? The Word of God has an impact. And how we live that Word and how we display that Word in our walk and in our conduct will have that impact on those whom we love. But contact is required. We need to communicate. We need to be with one another. There may be a place for texts, for emails, cards, but personal encouragement is that which is most effective. And so we make time to be with our children. We make time to be with our wives, to be with our husbands. We spend time alone for dates, talking about concerns, talking about struggles, encouraging one another in the Lord. And as a body of Christ, we make time for worship. We don't forsake the gatherings together of the body. We take opportunity to be with one another as occasion allows it. Come to church on time. Interact with others. Stay later. Come to Bible studies. Encourage one another with the Psalms. Sing together. As we hear the Word of God together, we grow in our walk with God. We encourage one another in connection with what we've heard so that we make an effort to live and to dwell together. We need one another. And we're called to seek out the well-being of one another. It's striking that in the Bible, often they're called the one another passages. There are probably 30 of them that speak of our calling one toward another. All of us have a calling. Seek the well-being of one another. Just as Jesus didn't come to seek his own will, his own way, to please himself, he came to seek the will of his heavenly Father and to do that which was right and good for his people, those whom the Father had given him. But secondly, we need also a right perspective. Out of love, we seek the good of others, realizing that everything that we do or don't do is going to have an impact, for good or for bad, on those around us. Am I building others up with a positive, spiritual attitude of love? Or am I cutting them down, always being negative, backbiting, slander? Am I doing it for the right reason, to show off my own abilities? Or is it because of my love for God and my desire to extol and to honor God? I don't need to feel that I have to teach everything that I know to everyone I have contact with. That becomes a matter then of living in pride. The life of the church isn't a talent show. That's not unto edifying. And your children will figure out too, what is it that motivates them? Fellow saints quickly are drawn either closer to you or away from you. We need to examine our hearts. Is it my love for God that motivates and my desire to be used by him for the good of the neighbor. And if that's the case, then I pray for the grace to listen. I seek to live out of the wonder of the gospel so that I can be used by God's grace for the good of others.
If we just think of Jesus, in the past weeks we've been commemorating his death and his crucifixion. While on the cross, Jesus was not self-absorbed. While on the cross, Jesus was thinking of his people. He was thinking of those whom God had identified as his neighbors. He was a living example to you and to me of how we are to conduct ourselves and how we are to walk. To John and Mary, woman, behold thy son, son, behold thy mother. What tender compassion, what care, what encouragement and love toward his own mother and his beloved disciple. The Roman centurion is nailing him to the cross and putting him on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And we know that that prayer was directed in part toward that Roman centurion who later smote his breast, crying out for mercy. To the thief hanging on the cross next to him, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Jesus thinking of those around him and how those words lifted them, how they encouraged those individuals. Are we living in a Christ-like spirit toward those around us? Beloved, we live in a spiritual battle. And because of that spiritual battle, all the more the admonition of our text is necessary. The devil is using so many things in our lives to make us self-preoccupied. The devil succeeds in so much slander, backbiting, negative language, so much preoccupation of living for me and living for what I desire and what I want. And the devil gives us all kinds of excuses to just keep living that way. Cut ourselves off from everyone else, isolate ourselves. We make excuses. I don't need to be building up others. I don't have that gift. That's not a calling that God has given to me. And so we isolate ourselves from the body. We don't show much care, much concern for others. Beloved, our lives are to be lived in the service of our Lord and King. The one who laid his life down for us. The one who took us into covenant with himself. And so there's an admonition here that has an urgency to it. And the urgency is felt in the context of this epistle. Saints under persecution. In a persecution that's intensifying. And as that persecution intensifies, and as the end gets closer, you need each other. You need to be watching and praying. You need to be pulling shoulder to shoulder. You need to be encouraging one another and building one another up. Because the devil is not slacking off. He's coming with more tools and with more intensity. And so the encouragement that the apostle here gives, even as also ye do. Again, he doesn't come harshly with accusations about their failures. He's not saying... You're not doing this. He's saying, keep doing it. You are children of the light. And as children of the light, live out of that light. There's a great need for your continued labors. We desire to see the whole body of Christ built up unto the glorious bride of Jesus Christ. And we know our labor is not in vain in the Lord. We must not become weary in well-doing. We must not fall asleep. These days require of us watchfulness, attentiveness, and eager looking for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
We're not citizens of Rome who use slogans and talk about peace. We're peacemakers. We're those who know the wonder of that everlasting peace that is in Jesus Christ. And knowing the marvelous grace of the gospel, confessing Christ as our Savior, we know the wonder and the joy of the comfort and the encouragement that's found in Him. But beloved, life is difficult. Life is challenging. As the world gets darker and darker, and as the return of Jesus gets closer, walk with one another. Comfort, encourage one another. This is why God places us as parents in our families with our children. This is why God puts us as spouses together. This is why we're placed within a body. We interact one with another. And God will work positive fruit in our marriages. He will work positive fruit in our parenting. He will work positive fruit in the church of Jesus Christ. That positive fruit, seen especially in three things. Number one, there will be joy in our lives. Despite the persecution, despite the opposition, the Thessalonian saints knew joy. By nature, we're tempted to heaviness. The Proverbs 12, verse 25, talks about that. Heaviness in the heart of a man maketh it stoop, but a good word maketh it glad. And you know the power of that, a good word spoken to you, how that lifts your heart, and how it makes it so that you are able to go forward now Not in heaviness, but in joy. Never underestimate the power of the Word of God in the lives of others. Joy. But number two, a renewed sense of zeal and purpose in our lives. As we're discouraged at times, we need to be reminded that we are children of the light. Proverbs 15 verse 30 says, The light of the eyes rejoiceth the heart, and a good report maketh the bones fat. The idea there of the connection between our physical, mental, spiritual well-being. That there's a connection. They go together. The encouraging word, the admonition that brings us back to the path of obedience. Those are means by which God rejoices our hearts. And God makes it so that we have renewed purpose and renewed zeal in our lives as we live unto Him and we pursue His glory. Finally, there's a sweetness. There's a unity that is a fruit. Pleasant words are as a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and health to the bones. Proverbs 16, verse 24. God puts a sweetness in our relationship with our children, our relationship with our spouse, our relationship with one another. Instead of those relationships characterized by warfare, by strife, by trouble, peace, unity, a sweetness by God's grace. And so, beloved, we go away from the table of the Lord, comforting ourselves together, edifying one another in Christ, as together we labor with our eye of faith focused on Him, the wonder of His everlasting covenant, the wonder of His coming again, And we live out of that joy, that enthusiasm, and that peace and unity. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, we rejoice in what great things thou hast done for us. 
And as thy children in the midst of this world, strengthen us, encourage us, cause that we might press on in that joy of our salvation and our union with Christ and that we together might show forth that praise. Forgive us and bless us for Jesus' sake. Amen.